Hi, I'm Jess Van Ostrand from The Project Room. Authors and brothers Joe and David Henry visited The Project Room recently to chat about their new book, Furious Cool, Richard Pryor and the World That Made Him. As young kids who fell under Pryor's comedic spell, and as adults and brothers who collaborate, there was much to discuss in light of our current theme, How Are We Remembered? Thanks for listening. So I'm here with David Henry and Joe Henry, the authors of Furious Cool, Richard Pryor and the World That Made Him. Um, thank you for being here at the Project Room. You're welcome. Thanks for having us. So um, I want to make sure we can distinguish your voices. Can you introduce yourselves and we'll see how different you sound? Okay. This is Joe Henry speaking. And this is David Henry. Or okay. Dave Henry. Dave, Dave. Dave. Okay. Thank you. Thank you. So congratulations on the book. Thank you. Um, it's interesting um, to me that this is a departure from your regular creative work. So my first question is about how that transition went for, for each of you. Um, one of you, um, David being a screenwriter and Joe being a musician, music producer, songwriter. So um, would you tell us a little bit about what that was like to cross over into the world of writing? Well, for me, it was, uh, I'm guessing that it was more a challenge for me than for Dave, uh, only because he has developed over many, many years, you know, the art of sustaining an arc and controlling its tension and release over, you know, you know hundreds of pages. And uh, I work on something I like to think just as hard that winds up being, you know, three verses, four verses on a page. <laughs> um, it's quite different. It really is. But I'd like to think that, that it just offset our division of labor in a way. You know, David was very much the architect, you know, structurally of the book. And I, I decided that it was, if I had something to offer, it was, it was more about blurring the lines a bit and, and scrambling the story a little bit more, making it mm. a little less linear, mm. um, just because that's how I think. I'm, my work as a songwriter is probably more impressionistic, even though I, I don't think that I'm not a narrative songwriter, but it's not linear narrative, mm. if you know what I mean. It's, it's much more impressionistic, and you know, we thought going into it that, that we could sort of serve both our strengths, and, it would, and they would both serve the book. Right, right. So when you are songwriting, are you saying that those were skills that you were able to apply? It sounds like you did transfer the skills that you use to write songs into Oh, I know. That that's that's yeah. still how I think. I mean, no matter what I'm writing. And I do write, you know, I'll write liner notes to records I've produced, or I've written magazine articles. And I still feel like I'm always looking through the lens of a songwriter. I'm mm -hmm. never not thinking like a songwriter. I'm just thinking, I'm a songwriter now that has to, uh, you know, fill up more space. <laughs> or, you know, be less... Uh, um, abstract when I might like to be more abstract, uh, you know, as a rule. So how do you remove the audio component of writing for this kind of project? Well, that didn't seem to be a problem for huh. me because I'm, you know, I, I, I'm, I'm a big reader. I, I'm not as well read as Dave. I just read the same few books over and over and over again. Um, but I listen to the same records over and over again, too. Um, so I, I, I feel like I do have an understanding of, of my voice on a page. Um, it's not all just in the air. You know, I mean, a song ultimately has to work in the air. It's not music if it's not in the air. And Joe is a very rhythmic writer, too, because he writes song lyrics. And I think some of his lyrics I can think of offhand. Even if you hadn't heard the music, I can't imagine that you would try and read them out loud and they wouldn't. Really? You wouldn't follow a rhythm no. and come up with a, with a, a music, and hear a musicality in it. 
Well, I think you're, I mean, I'm always thinking about the musicality of that, you know, even before there is music. I don't always write the words first, but I'm a very word-centric writer as a songwriter. It's more mm. often than not a lyric that, that, that is the first impulse of a song. I mean, not always, but mm-hmm. I mean, sometimes I'll, it, it'll be a melody, mm-hmm. um, or a rhythmic idea, but um, I'm very driven by words. And I don't think I would be a songwriter if I hadn't been enamored with songwriters that were word-centric you know, mm-hmm. early on. That's just my orientation. But I'm always aware that, that, I, that I fall into um, a certain sort of uh, respective rhythm no matter what I'm writing. Mm. Oh, I, just, I'm, interesting. I, I just never knew that, that if that was noticeable to anybody else. I'm aware. Right, right. <laughs> well, and it was definitely noticeable to you, Dave. You right. recognize his, his way of writing. Mm-hmm. So then what was your role as the quote-unquote architect? Well, I probably did most of the structuring at the outset. Mm-hmm. Before we really started writing in earnest, we put together a pretty good outline. Um, chapter outline, what we were going to cover, synopsis of each mm-hmm. chapter. And I mean, that's what we used to sell the book to the publisher. The book wasn't completely <laughs> right. written. You know, so we put together, there is a plan. We put together <laughs> a pretty detailed proposal and you know, with the full understanding that you know, we don't have to stick to this once we, uh, you know, once, a deal, once we have somebody on board. But right. to, you know, to get someone to, uh, to invest in us, to give us you know, a but to believe we that there was to, enough there, there. We had, yeah, that, <laughs> exactly. we, that we knew what we were going to cover and how we were going to do it. So I think, you know, I, I probably did most of that kind of sketching out. And, but we both agreed at the beginning that it was probably going to be kind of a messy, sprawling mm-hmm. book just to fit the subject and the times that we weren't going to be so... But, and we weren't trying to write the definitive book about Richard Pryor. The way Joe likes to describe it is you can take your lens and look at a subject with it or you can take your subject and let it be the lens that you look at everything else with. and that's more what we wanted to do look at the times that immediately preceded Richard Pryor and uh, you know, his family's history coming up from Louisiana after World War One and settling in the heartland you know the sort of southern creole inflected culture mm-hmm. community that existed and you know in a river in a Illinois River Town. Mm-hmm. So you know, we had that pretty much nailed down, and we we stuck to it more than I thought we would. We mm. do like bring things in, and can, but we didn't, you know, we didn't have to jump around as much as I thought we would because just the nature of the subject, we could, we were sort of free to just pull things in like that, and we had it structured enough that, you know, there's we're covering this, we're covering this, we're covering this, and Joe could do his thing that was a page or two long sometimes. Within just that for, format. Just, yeah, yeah. yeah we just thought we might have here. to take the form apart to, to make it sprawl, but the, the mm. forms, as Dave kind of sketched it out, um, sort of gave us enough structure to be free within it, if you mm. know what I mean. Yep, you know, that makes have, perfect sense. You know, just enough security to, be, to feel liberated. Exactly. You just yeah. need those basic guidelines right. to and, work with. Yeah. And then Joe... For the most part, contributed these passages that are set us set us set aside from the narrative that we put all in italics, and they're more yeah. impressionistic. We're taking poetic liberties with what we, un, how we understand the times or what Richard Pryor was going through at mm-hmm. that time. I think I did one of them. It just seems like so much fun that I didn't want Joe to do all. <laughs> so I threw one in too, and then he buffed it up. <laughs> nice. Was this the first time you collaborated? Uh, First time formally, mm-hmm. I mean, uh, I lived with Dave, I mean, he's two years older than I am, mm. and thus, I lived with Dave until 
you know, from the time I was born until the weekend before I got married in 1987. kind of talked abstractly for years, like, it'd be great to find a project we could do together. Mm-hmm. Um, and not until the screenplay that, 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 that existed, you know, as a preamble to this, uh, as, as the universe deemed it, did we really mm. formally get in the trenches together. So was Richard Pryor the obvious subject for you to work on together, formally? Well, I don't think it, it wasn't like we went and chose him as a subject. It just sort of, the circumstance sort of, Dictated, as you find out, I think many artists will will say that after a period of time, you realize that you know circumstance frequently dictates um, direction. Often, mm-hmm. a subject seems to just choose me on mm-hmm. things I like to write. It's like I have, you know, like anybody who writes, I probably have plenty of files and things full of rough ideas or false starts or or starts of something I'll have time to do later that mm-hmm. seem like a great idea one day and. Yeah, I'll get back to that. But this right. uh, Richard Pryor was important to us for so from the time we were really young. He was like one of he along with Bob Dylan and Muhammad Ali and Miles Davis. He was just one of those figures of that magnitude. He kind of went off the rails a little more. He, but he still produced a lot of of really great work all through the '70s before he became a Hollywood superstar and just made sort of you know pretty much mediocre movies for the money. Mm-hmm. At which point, we, I mean, we're not fans of those. He doesn't even seem like the same person mm-hmm. doing those. So we had a very strong connection to Richard Pryor from the time we were, we were really young. And uh, Joe, one day in 1999 or 2000, wrote a song about Richard Pryor. It oh. just had his name in the title. His, Richard yeah. Pryor's name doesn't occur anywhere in the song lyrics. Joe sings it first person as Richard Pryor. I didn't mean to do it. I mean, uh, uh, a lot of songs just happened that way. I was driving one day, and I just heard this song begin in my head, and it was in first person. And I was, I can still picture where I was on the road when it started to unspool. I was close to the house coming in from, <laughs> from a meeting in, in, in Hollywood or something. I lived east of downtown Los Angeles. And, uh, you know, got home and started, you know, writing it down, letting it unspool as it wanted to, and just somehow understood that this first-person voice uh, was Richard Pryor, or it could be if I allowed him to be, mm-hmm. and I just thought, that, you know, why not? And the, the song is called uh, uh, Richard Pryor Addresses a Tearful Nation, and again, um, his name is only in the title, it just kind of tells you how to hear it. It doesn't, you know, and it basically is a song that just says, you know, I... Um, you know, sort of about his conflicted relationship with the country that I imagined, you know, he loathed but also wanted to be accepted by, you know, mm-hmm. things about America that, that he hated and yet, you know, he was of it mm-hmm. and desirous of affirmation. That's just sort of what the song's about in a way, mm. um, you know, uh, and this idea of, of this country is, is disappearing and the character singing the song kind of says, and I'm disappearing too, mm-hmm. you know. Um, and that led me to uh, the, the, the label I was on at the time insisted that I get Richard's permission to use his name in a song title, though I knew that I legally didn't have to do that, but they forced me to. Mm-hmm. And it, broke, it meant that I had to go find him. 
Ah. Um, so I did. <laughs> and then I was asked by Esquire magazine. Uh, I recorded the song with the great jazz saxophonist Ornick Coleman. And I was asked to write a piece for Esquire magazine about how the idea of one led me to work with the other and how I saw the connection between Richard and Ornette. And then based on that piece, Richard and his wife asked me if I would write a, a screenplay based on Richard's life. And I said, of course, well, I'm, I'm not a screenwriter, I'm a songwriter. And they said, yes, we know. We don't want to work with a screenwriter. Mm. Um, so I said, I'll give it a whirl, uh, but I would need help because I don't, I don't know how to write like that. But I said, I know somebody and who does. And you happen to know somebody who does. So there we were. You know, oh, two years okay. working on spec. Um, you know, not, not a dime did we see. Mm. Um, but threw ourselves into it as we were raised to do. <laughs> and uh, Richard's wife pulled the plug on the whole project at the 11th hour, as apparently she was raised to do. And, uh, She's done that a few times. So recruited other people to work on the... She likes the process. She has not big on closure. Screenwriters and lots of directors. In the She's scared she likes, of the follow. She likes to yeah. take the meetings. It's fun to take the meetings. <laughs> Somebody else buys Anything lunch. Anything can happen in yeah. those early <laughs> stages. Right. It's very exciting. It's, it's buzzy. Yes, it's buzzy. <laughs> and it feels good. It starts to get too specific, I think, and too you know. Where she anyway, she seems to. Enjoy so she the pulled the plug, but then you finished it well, and followed right. through. Well, we, we had finished the screenplay, and then we we had no legal agreement with them. weren't hired by them. They just asked us if. They yeah. So they didn't know what we wrote. So. They didn't even see it. I mean, no, they, they saw the script and liked it until the 11th hour when they dis- she decided that she didn't like it and had somebody else she wanted to bring in. But we owned what we wrote. I mean, they had never sure. paid us for it. We had no deal in place. So we left and worked on it more. Um, had a couple possibilities. I, I, as, as a musician, as a producer, I was working with Harry Belafonte, and he showed some interest in producing it. But, you know, the man is, you know, even at that moment, was 83. I didn't, and he had many things on his plate, as he still does. Uh, and at one point in this process, Dave, you know, just said to me on the phone one day, like, look, who knows what will ever happen with a screenplay? I mean, Leo DiCaprio has movies that he develops for five years that don't get made. You know, this may never get made. But we've done all this work. We put all this thought into it. Why don't we just write a book, and then we can do what we want? Hmm. And... Um, here we are. And here we are. Yeah. Well, and the book is a great read. Do you think, um, I haven't seen the screenplay, is it, how similar is it? Not at all. It's to- completely different. That's, okay. yeah, that's another interesting part for us, I think, is by the time we got to this point, our, our, our inclination was to keep moving backwards in his story. Oh. The screenplay kind of took place, covered pretty much the zenith of his career, from his great rise to his fall, you know, his decline into free base haze and mm-hmm. tried to kill himself by setting himself on fire. And, and Which is that, how the book opens. Right. That's kind of, we thought that was both a, a good place to begin for people who, that's all they know about Richard Pryor. Is it himself that, on fire? That, you know, that's like the big, for casual you know, followers of his right, life, sure. that's one thing everybody knows. And it's also kind of a cinematic or a, a, a storytelling Strategy. Mm-hmm. Start with this dramatic thing, and we've left it kind of impressionistic and loose. But you know, and now we'll see how he got there. Kind right. Of, kind of device. Which, I, yeah, I think it's very effective. But uh, yeah, but our, by the time we were ready to write the book, uh, our, our our interest in him had had uh, expanded even more. It's like. There's all this other stuff which we couldn't fit into the screenplay even if we wanted to. Mm-hmm. That it just it's too unwieldy and too yeah, it wouldn't fit into a three act structure. 
Mm-hmm. Or, or even a 10x. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Or even Many like X. a poorly structured script. <laughs> like, so we thought, yeah, it gave us license to go places we couldn't go here, like more expanded um, testimony from other people mm-hmm. than you could fit into even a leisurely documentary. Mm-hmm. So I mean, we, like, didn't, back we, didn't, uh, we didn't really try and make the you know, novelization of the screenplay. Or, right, or understood. We, we started, okay. We took a lot of things, uh, you know, we'd interviewed people for the, you know, research for the screenplay, and we already had a good bit of material that we hadn't used in the screenplay that we used in the book. But then we started talking to people who came earlier and going a little further afield, people mm-hmm. who weren't on the record and other things that had been written about Richard Pryor, and it mm-hmm. hadn't been a book specifically about him written in a long time. There are a couple of memoirs by people who knew him, just telling personal stories, but mm-hmm. as far as examining his artistic significance and what he meant as a, to the culture and to, to race and to stand-up comedy, I mean, there have been chapters about him and books about the 70s, and, but it's a father and son team, um, John and Dennis Williams, I hope I got their names right, his father, I hope it's John and Dennis. I think so. <laughs> anyway, they wrote a book about him that, oh. was, that was good, but it was that was back in '93. I I'd have to look. That was in late '80s. It had been a while. It had been, and they, so that you know, that to me was like the last book of this kind that had been written when he was his story wasn't over yet. And mm. I'm just going to check this just for the record because I don't want to be. Wrong. Yeah, but again, we weren't just <laughs> only writing about Richard. You were using Richard as a as a way to write about a lot of other things, which is okay. What's the landscape out of which he walked? You mm-hmm. know, it's always been our inclination to get to the root of something. You know, mm-hmm. I, mean, I used Bob Dylan as an analogy a minute ago. You know, as a songwriter, you know, when I, you know, had a Bob epiphany as a 11 year old or whatever I was. My, you know, it's was and and Dave uh, had one as well. You know, to find out, okay, well, he's taken all these these pieces and putting them together in a way that nobody ever has. But where do these pieces come from? He didn't he didn't pull those out of a hat. Mm-hmm. And so you start going back to what he got three in Lead Belly and Robert Johnson and Jimmy Reed and Hank Williams and the Beat Poets and and. Um, Walt Whitman and on and on and okay you know that's what that's what allowed Bob to happen he did do something absolutely galvanizing and anomalous with it but you know there was resource that he was pulling from and mm-hmm. we wanted to kind of look at Richard the same way mm-hmm. we have we have a sense of what he became and then what happened to him but how did he become mm-hmm. you know the book is as much about that and the right. and, and the circumstances and the culture that allowed him to to happen so did you find at all that you were kind of pushing back against the, like, struggling genius cliche? I mean, it seems like, you know, that's something that exists out there. And he was certainly a tortured soul. Well, he was ways. a genius and he was struggling. Uh, Dave might have a different response to that. I, I didn't feel any, um, I didn't feel any conflict with that notion. Mm-hmm. I mean, it was, you know, it's easy for me, in fact, to look at someone like Charlie Parker, who, who Richard also loved and we love, who, an artist to, to whom we are devoted, um, who was as, you know, fucked up, I'm sorry, uh, I don't know where That's this is fine. going, uh, as, as Richard ever was, and as brilliant and as influential as Richard ever was. Um, I mean, there's a lot of similarity between the two, mm. you know, where you get someone like Richard who was, I think, aware of his dysfunction and his self-destruction um, and he could share all kind of truth about himself on stage even when he couldn't apply it 
to himself in real life. Mm. And it wasn't lost on him, I don't think. Mm-hmm. And I think that's interesting. It doesn't, doesn't diminish what he offered to the rest of us just because he couldn't apply it to himself. And a lot of people would, would want to suggest that, you know, um, you know, why would you, you know, people have asked, you know, why would you want to write a book about somebody who is so fucked up? And I go, well, it's not, it's not like his, you know, if he was nicer, it would merit, you know, a book. And if he's n- nasty, he doesn't get one. Um, <laughs> you know, what he... It's the opposite. Yeah, I mean, what he offers as an artist is not diminished just because he couldn't make more out of it for himself personally. Mm-hmm. You know, that's got nothing to do with yeah. it. And just because we like him doesn't mean he owes us anything else. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And he was, a, he was a struggling artist. And, it's, it's, he, and one thing we found out that kind of surprised me was how much of a craftsman he was. Mm. How much he really worked hard at developing what he did. Because I mean, it always seemed like he mostly did it on stage. He seemed so... Um, in the moment, and he was in the moment, but we talked to other people who worked with him, other comedians, and they told us stories, and, and people who knew him well, you figure it take, subtract the time he spent, you know, doing coke and involved with so many women and things, when does he have time left to work on this? But they would talk about <laughs> how he was always watching, always working, always, you know, and, and writing down, and, and whether he wrote it down or not. It is that something emerged that kind of surprised mm. me a little bit that he spent. Yeah, uh, I mean, a lot of musicians don't rehearse that much. They play. I mean, he always performs, mm-hmm. so, and he spent so much time performing, especially in his younger years. Mm-hmm. That well, and it comes across in how he re- revisits material and right. makes edits and changes it, mm-hmm. and that comes across really clearly in the book. I think yeah. that's very well. If you go back, you very know, surprising. The, I think probably mm-hmm. for most people. You know, the film that I think is 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 the great document of his of his genius, the 1979 uh, Richard Pryor live in concert, the, the film that was made in Long Beach of a performance. Um, you know, there's a live album. Uh, and there are live recordings from that whole tour that led up to that filmed performance, and he's. He's telling the same stories, he's using the same frame, but it's not like he memorized and polished a routine and then went and read it into the public record. You, mm-hmm. know? you know, every night he's ex- expanding on, on, in a performance mode within the structure of this narrative, and mm-hmm. um, that, that's how musicians work, and mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. it, it makes perfect sense to me that that's, you know. It seems like he was. He was also pushing boundaries with his work. Mm. Did you do you think there were any lines that he wouldn't cross? Do you think he was really mm. pushing that hard? No, there may have been lines he crossed that didn't get put on record or on an LP. Yeah. Or <laughs> David David uh, Letterman, who uh, he was a favorite of Richard Pryor's. He'd sometimes like have the run of the the comedy store to workshop material, but he could also have somebody come in and warm up and, oh, and, that, okay. and he often picked David Letterman. David Letterman was one of the three or four. And he tells a story about what's following Richard Pryor on mm-hmm. stage. And he said that he mm-hmm. Richard Pryor had finished with his whole routine about having sex with his dog. He says it didn't really work. It wasn't that good. <laughs> <laughs> and he said I had to go out there and follow that. <laughs> so I think he tried that I'm not saying he tried that in actuality, but he tried that as a as Conceit, a bit. Yeah. And, and you know I think he tried things that didn't quite work. Mm-hmm. But I, I, I don't think he resisted anything because he thought it was too delicate. Right, right. <laughs> <laughs> Might not have been Just funny checking. enough for yeah. him or, or connect with him as a, as a vehicle. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, 
I'm not aware of anything that he thought was, you know, well, that's just in bad taste. Right. Let's <laughs> <laughs> not go there. Um, so then um, when he, um, actually, maybe I'll switch to another question. When you, um, when you were talking about your childhood and all these, and these early influences, were all these influences from creative sources? You've mentioned, mm. I think, only creative figures. Was that sort of your primary resource oh, for inspiration? Say, yeah, you know, novelists, poets, filmmakers, painters, photographers, you know, people like Buckminster Fuller, who's sort of everything. Mm-hmm. I don't know what you'd call him. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I'm not sure, uh, you know, there's no politicians in there for me, if that's what you're asking. I don't know what they would say. <laughs> I would say uh, another oh, source. Malcolm, of thing. though. Hmm? Oh, really? I mean, Malcolm X, really, really big. Uh, trans- transforming figure for both of us. So I take that back. Though uh, I would probably argue there's some real artistry involved in what he was doing, um, but he doesn't fall into that category so sure. cleanly. But Malcolm, uh, n- n- no small thing. Why? What? What especially had such a big impact on you? Oh, his uh, absolute commitment. You know, I remember when you know the first time I read the autobiography when I was probably 17, and because Dave handed it to me, mm-hmm. um, I remember Dave making the comment. And I can't remember now if he was quoting somebody or it was just his own observation that you know uh, the, the thing that you know Malcolm could never sell out because he was already doing exactly what he wanted to be doing. He was already mm-hmm. you know there was nothing more valuable to him than what he was already doing. So you know. How can you make someone like that sell out? Mm-hmm. So that concept, you know, was in my mind fairly early on because mm-hmm. you hear people, you know, looking at an artist, and as soon as the artist turns a direction that, as the l- listener or observer, you don't prefer, it's so easy for people mm-hmm. to say, "Oh, he's sold out." It's like, well, you never know whether somebody's sold out or not because you don't know what their ultimate ambition was. Right. But I, I was completely enamored with um, Malcolm's unbelievable focus and commitment to something that he knew, I think, would be the end of his life. Mm. He was also a tremendous speaker. Irresistible. And, mm-hmm. and very funny. Too. People don't realize how funny he was in listening to some of his speeches. Mm-hmm. Not doing a routine, but he, but he gets going and he's like, And he was also just, uh, just that kind of fearless honesty. And he wasn't... And he had... Uh, there were two things, really. That, uh, just what I, this popular conception I had of who Malcolm X was from Life magazine and mm-hmm. 60 Minutes and things like that. And then I read his book, you know, his entire book in his own words. And I'm like, that's Malcolm X? That's the people everybody is demonizing and stuff? Because yeah. he was <laughs> The hate that hate produced. A, uh, yeah, he was such, a, 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 such an irresistible figure. And, and another thing, I, my, he was willing to change course when he saw that what he had been saying or what he believed wasn't true or no longer worked for him. Mm. He didn't just you know, keep up the, like he came up with Elijah Muhammad and the black, what Elijah Muhammad called the black Muslims and, and they taught that, you know, white people were created by the devil and white was the devil and he, and that, you know, I think Malcolm X even kind of used that more metaphorically mm-hmm. even though Elijah Muhammad did. But the, he, he, as a Muslim, he made the pilgrimage to Mecca and he saw all these Muslims who looked, what anyone else would say were white. Mm-hmm. And he came back and he says, "No, white people are not the devil. I was wrong. You know, yeah, these white people are acting like teaching. devils. You know, it's like mm-hmm. white is not the devil. There's yeah. a colonial state of mind that we've experienced in America. That's what we're talking about. But, but it's you know, he completely reverted. You know, he was just completely willing to mm-hmm. not hang on to all what he had built. You know, as a popular yeah. following. He just he says, no, I was wrong.'" 
So it seems like your access was mostly through books and television a little bit, right? Mm -hmm. Sure. Were those your two main sources for finding things? Because you, you didn't grow up in a major city, right? Uh, I mean, yes and no. I mean, we lived, we're from Charlotte. We lived in Atlanta for a while when, when, mm -hmm. in, in the late 60s when we were young. And then a couple stops in Ohio. Our father worked for the, for the auto industry. And so in that day, at least, all roads led to Detroit if you were a lifer in that racket like our dad was. Um, so we wound up, you know, right as I began high school, and Dave was at the end of high school, um, in a suburb of Detroit, sort of, uh, but absolutely suburban. And in Ohio, sort of, you know, in a suburb between Akron and Cleveland. So, you know, we had sort of cosmic access. But if you're that young and you're in a suburb, that's where you live. Mm -hmm. You know, we didn't trek into Cleveland, you know, for the weekends and look for books right. and records. That's just <laughs> right. yeah, well, we always had good libraries. We had good libraries. And some good teachers. Yeah. Oh, yeah. And older and friends who had older brothers and sisters. Mm -hmm. so. so then, I mean, as far as um, kids today goes who have a whole different kind of access, it seems like you guys would have a pretty incredible must-reading list for a youth growing up now. <laughs> well, my son is uh, 22. Uh, uh, he's a jazz musician, though not only. He plays all kind of stuff, but he's mm -hmm. a beautiful jazz musician. And um, he is, in fact, very well read. And not because I, I don't have any memory of, I mean, obviously, I'm not, I didn't browbeat him, but and I never said, like, here's the stuff that should matter to you. But I made sure that the house was full of stuff that does matter to me. Sure. And, you know... I didn't tell him to read, you know, Rilke when he was in seventh grade. He just went there. Mm. I didn't tell him that that, that, that that Whitman would matter to him. He just somehow, and Emerson at the same time, just sort of found himself there completely enthralled by them. Mm. No one more surprised than me, but, you know, obviously delighted. Mm. Um, but I think some of that, and, and that's what I was saying when we first started talking about Dave's influence on me growing up, even though only two years between us, that's a significant two years. You know, Dave has access to friends, and he'd come home with, you know, you know, here's Highway 61. Here's, you know, mm -hmm. you know, here's Astral Weeks. You know, you know, here's uh, here's William Carlos Williams. Here's John Cage. Uh, mm -hmm. You know, it was available to me, uh, and again, he didn't browbeat me with it, but I understood that it was sitting on his desk in his room on purpose. And right. uh, I think I think my son. You know, just picked up a lot, you know, through that kind of osmosis. Mm -hmm. Well, and you're lucky to have such a well-read <laughs> older brother. Don't I know? <laughs> it's it, a yeah. good influence. Sure. No pressure there, yeah. Dave. <laughs> you, know, that's like, you did well with your role as older brother, I would yeah. think. Um, so then, at the, so then, what did your did your parents play a role in all these people that you admired? I mean, what did they think of it? Were they Richard Pryor fans? <laughs> no, or? but I will say that they they played a role in that they and this is. This is no small thing. Our parents played a role in never discouraging or disparaging anything that we cared about. Didn't matter whether they got it or not. Good parents. You know, when I was like 15 and just on fire listening to, to country blues music, and my mother had a tiny little sewing room upstairs just off where our bedrooms were in Michigan, and just if I was completely enthralled, and I would go in and like mom and say, oh, I put on Lead Belly, Library of Congress recording, I was like, listen to this. She's like, oh, that's, yeah, that's beautiful, you know, and not in any patronizing way. And I, and I never, 
you know, I'm, she didn't lead me to believe that she was listening to Lead Valley when I was off at school or anything. <laughs> you never but, know. <laughs> but you cannot underestimate the significance of the fact that they found a way to encourage and, and genuinely cared about the things because we cared about them. Mm-hmm. You know. That's an excellent parenting lesson, mm-hmm. I think, to sort of maintain, I think so too. somehow maintain or at least fake some kind of neutrality right. about all of these things that your kids might experience. And as a musician, you know, I, you know, if my son or, uh, uh, you know, it's, it's more likely with my daughter because my son and I share so much uh, uh, of our artistic sensibility. Mm. Uh, my daughter, who's 16, she loves a lot of things that I love, but she also digs a lot of things that, that, don't, that don't touch me. Mm-hmm. But I would never let myself discourage her from that or if I sense that in any way I've inadvertently been discouraging because she will assume that I don't like that music mm-hmm. uh, I take myself out of the room mm-hmm. you know I would never want to say just because I don't think that that is valuable to me that thus it has less value to you mm-hmm. yeah no, that makes that makes so much sense so then getting back to the book do you do you feel like the book has achieved the goals that you set out for it or and do you still think the screenplay will happen will get produced is that is that a goal or was that kind of the thing you needed to do to get to the book well it was it was the thing that got us to the book and for me you know the book has so far achieved its goal because it lays there Mm -hmm. you know it exists yeah it was published Um, and if somebody came to us who dug the book and said it makes me really curious to want to read your screenplay then fantastic Mm -hmm. right but at least for me personally and again dave may have a very different response to this um i don't feel that i that Okay, now we've got to go back and now, now we've helped Lee creating some new interest. Now let's take another run at the screenplay. I, d- I don't feel the, the, the call to, to go do that. Mm-hmm. I just think that that's all one kind of extended um, thread. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, you know, I don't see them as, as, as existing separately, even though they're not the same thing at all, if you know what I mean. Sure, definitely. Mm-hmm. Does this make you want to um, do something else with Richard Pryor as a subject or collaborate again on something else? Do you have other ideas cooking now that this book has been published and is out? Yes. I would, it would be fun to collaborate with Joe on something else. And uh, we've talked about a couple of what that might be. Mm-hmm. And I've got other projects going on. I also sometimes produce... Um, like independent films. We have one that Joe actually had a, one of the starring roles in that was just premiered at the CBGB Film Festival in New York. It's like a music based. But what yeah, is that no, called? A good one. It's, <laughs> a it's small called Please to Meet Me, and it was loosely based on an uh, episode of This American Life from years ago about a, a woman, she's a producer, who puts together a band just for one day for musicians advertising in the classifieds. You know, like drummer seeks band, mm-hmm. and, bring it, so, and put him in the studio for one day to see what happens. Mm. So the director and I we took the script and kind of you know, fictionalized it, expanded it, and had all these you know, interactions between the you know for a full day. It mostly takes place in a recording studio. Oh, so yeah, it's so most of the actors. I mean, all the lead actors are, are all the lead actors, musicians. Oh, and, like John Doe, next, and John Doe. Yeah. So is it a, and is it a full length feature? Mm-hmm. Length? Okay. But I was like, even though I do that, I don't really feel like right now I'm okay. Okay, I'm going to get this film project up and running. That seems almost a little too much for me right now. Mm-hmm. But well, do you I'm feel like you've said what you wanted to say about Richard Pryor? I do. Yeah. 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 There is another. Yeah. I would, there are some things I'd like to look at a little more if the opportunity arose. Like his lost film that he tried to make, that Penelope Ferris, the director, she right. Uncle Tom's Fairy Tales. I'd still like to see if I could find. Find that movie. 
it must exist somewhere. Must be somewhere. I would, I would like to write something. If it, if it exists anywhere, people say that maybe Bill Cosby is in possession of it, but <laughs> I don't know. I'm <laughs> That's where the, the trail kind of ended, right? At least yeah. according to the yeah. book. According to a yeah. couple of people. Penelope found some, uh, she was great. She told, she told us really great stories, but mm-hmm. she found some dailies that she didn't realize she still had. Just, you know, no audio, no... Just and Penelope was the was in the role of producer, director. She directed and edited. edited yeah. yeah. I mean, she operated the camera with some of Richard's direction, mm-hmm. I think, but he was also in it. And so I think she she's certainly credited with co-directing and, and editing it. Mm-hmm. So far as the film has credits at all, mm-hmm. I mean, it's very, so that I would still like to I would still like to do something with that, even a magazine piece or something. Yeah, like that would be fascinating. It. Yeah, that would be an interesting. You know, and, and probably a magazine piece is, is probably what is probably the right length mm-hmm. idea for, for what for what might be there to say. Of mm-hmm. course, if you actually saw it, you may find that there's more there to write about. Yeah, um, I, can see I feel pretty is. satisfied at the moment that mm-hmm. you know we sort of offered what we what we can. Yeah, yeah. 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 Well, it's fantastic, and um, I want to thank you again for being here. Um, it's a it's a great book. I really enjoyed reading it, thank and you. I'm very thank curious you. to see um, what the two of you produce next, individually mm-hmm. or together. Thank you. <laughs> yes, thank you so much.